Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm so thankful you're listening. Today we're going to be interviewing Dr. Groteis of Denver Seminary. You may remember our interview with him last fall on the New Age Movement. He is a wonderful Christian apologist, as well as a professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. He's recently released a book titled Christian Apologetics, which is an incredible volume, around 750 pages of evidence that will lead anybody reading it to the conclusion that the Christian worldview is the most coherent and logical possible explanation of this universe and that we should follow Jesus Christ, believing his claims and receiving all that he has to offer for us. I don't want to get too much into what the book says because in our interview today, we're going to follow the outline of his book and ask some questions and allow Dr. Groteis himself to summarize his own book for us. So, stating again, Dr. Douglas Groteis is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. He is the author of numerous books, including Christianity That Counts, Confronting the New Age, Deceived by the Light, On Jesus, On Pascal, Revealing the New Age Jesus, The Soul in Cyberspace, Truth Decay, Unmasking the New Age, In Defense of Natural Theology, Jesus in an Age of Controversy, and hot off the presses, Christian apologetics. He's an authority on the New Age, apologetics, philosophy, and ethics. Please check out and buy those books and definitely get Christian apologetics. You can find more about Dr. Groteis at the Denver Seminary website, and you can also follow his blog, The Constructive Curmudgeon, blogspot.com. Again, that's the constructive curmudgeon.blogspot.com. Welcome to the God Solution, Dr. Groteis. Hi, Nate. How are you? I'm doing great. I'm thrilled to be on the phone with you here. So how are you doing this morning? Well, not too bad. I'm realizing I've got to get into preparation for school mode and get out of vacation mode. <laughs> well, anyway, welcome to the God Solution, and thanks again for joining us. People listening today come from a variety of different backgrounds and worldviews. How can a person evaluate their own belief system to see how it lines up with the evidence? The first thing is to understand what a worldview is. It's basically a set of assumptions or presuppositions about the basic structure of reality. So you ask questions about the origin and meaning of the universe, the nature and place of human beings, the basis for morality, is there an afterlife? Things like those are the essentials of a worldview. Also, you really want to consider your source of authority for what your worldview is. And a lot of people, I think, have some pretty fuzzy, vague notions of what they really believe about these philosophical issues. So the first step would be a kind of self-audit and articulation about one's belief system, you could say. And then secondly, you need to test it. You need to see if it's logical and if it fits the facts and if it gives a livable meaning to life. But it's not just enough to know what you believe. You also need to have some reasons why you believe it, especially when we live in a culture where people have different and conflicting worldviews. For example, Christian theism versus atheism, or Christian theism versus Islam. As you think about those comparisons, are there any examples that come to mind? Have you seen that happen, maybe with students you've taught, or people you've debated, or so forth? Oh, definitely, because a lot of people have not really subjected their basic philosophy of life to 
careful scrutiny. If it's a class that deals with philosophy of religion in some sense, I'll ask the students, how many of you have ever heard a logical, rational argument for God's existence? And by that I mean not one that just takes a leap of faith, but where you give evidence from philosophy, science, and so on, and the conclusion is that God exists, and it's usually about 10 to 15 percent of the students, wow. including the students who do believe in God. So, for example, in that setting, we'll look at several of the classical arguments for God's existence, the argument that the universe requires a cause to be explained, that's called the cosmological argument, the design argument that the world as a whole and in its parts shows evidence of being created by an intelligent being and so on. And the students really have to get a work out there because many of them have just had faith because they were raised that way or they picked up religious beliefs somehow. Or some have no belief in a God, but they've never seen the positive arguments for the existence of God. And I think just as intellectually responsible people with a conscience, we should be willing to think through and to evaluate our own beliefs with respect to truth and rationality and to do so with other beliefs as well, but definitely do so with our own because uh, you want to use the, the golden rule here. Um, you want to treat other people fairly because you would want them to treat you fairly with respect to rational evaluation. And I also think of what Jesus said about looking at the speck in your own, or looking at the log rather in your own eye before you look at the speck of dust in someone else's. So it could be that you're very critical of someone else's perspective on life, but you've never really evaluated your own. So if you're really going to enter into the world of logical evaluation and take truth seriously, you need to be ruthlessly honest with yourself as well as looking at the beliefs of other people. As you talk about taking truth seriously, what is truth and is there any such thing as absolute truth? Is it knowable, and why is it important? Well, that's a very important question. I have two chapters in the book that address the issue of truth, because some people will claim that there's no such thing as objective, absolute, universal truth, or if there is, we could never know it. So I argue that our common sense understanding of a true statement is one that corresponds to reality, and you can think of some very simple examples, such as how old you are. There's only one answer to that, and there are all kinds of wrong answers. Or think of moral truths, that it's always wrong to commit rape, it's always wrong to gratuitously harm another person. Well, those are truths. So we've got some truths that are objective, that are absolute that are universal they simply are true like it or not and that's the realm in which worldviews really operate is in terms of truth claims the great religions of the world do uh, christianity claims obviously that jesus christ is the final and unparalleled revelation of god and he is the only author of salvation buddhism claims something very different with its teaching of the four noble truths, but they both make absolute, objective, universal truth claims. So we need to face that and not take refuge, false refuge, 
in some kind of relativism or postmodernism that says that uh, there is no truth, or there is no objective truth. All you have to do with that statement is test it in terms of itself. Take the <laughs> statement, there is no objective truth. Well, if that statement's claiming to be true, then it refutes itself. If it's just a subjective preference of the person uttering it, then it has no purchase on outside reality, so it doesn't really matter. But either way, the statement hurts itself, shoots itself uh, in the head, basically. We actually talked about that the first week of school, and a couple days, or I think actually the next day, one of the girls that had heard us talk that last night was in a class where a professor said there is no truth, and she asked the professor what we had told the students to ask the night before, is that true? And uh, it created a very embarrassing situation for the professor that was teaching that class. Well, that's a terrific story because sometimes these professors can get away with intellectual murder and they're very well educated and well informed and intelligent in some areas, but sometimes in terms of basic logic, they haven't carefully assessed their own beliefs. One of my students at Denver Seminary who went on to law school essentially did the same kind of thing with a professor of jurisprudence. And uh, she had no idea how to respond. She basically just changed the subject. (laughs) Wow. Interesting, interesting. So you talked about it a little bit a minute ago, but what are some of the arguments for the existence of God, both from logic and science, and how would you build an argument for the existence of God? In my book, Christian Apologetics, I've got about 200 pages arguing for the existence of a personal, designing, creating being distinct from the universe but involved with it. You can talk about different families of arguments. I mentioned one earlier called the cosmological argument. And that's where you argue from the cosmos or from the universe to a cause or support for the universe. And one way to do this through scientific evidence is to use Big Bang cosmology that has been very well established in the last 30 or 40 years or so, or more, actually, if you go back to the origins of it. And the conclusion of the Big Bang argument is that the universe began to exist from nothing a finite time ago. It's a very long time ago, but the conclusion that everything came out of nothing was, in fact, very startling to a lot of the scientists that were helping develop this theory. They really didn't like it, not because it was unscientific or not based in the empirical evidence, but because it went against their worldview of naturalism, that the universe has always existed and there is no cause of it that is, of course, outside of it. But I argue in the book that uh, the best in physics really supports the idea that the universe came into existence out of nothing, And if we talk about the entire universe coming into being a limited time ago, then we need an explanation. To just say it happened for no reason without a cause is really not an explanation at all. It's just saying uh, we give up. But I think the idea that there was a personal cause that had the power to bring it about and chose to bring it about is a far more rational explanation than that the universe has always existed or that it just popped into existence 
out of nothing. I call that the pop goes the universe theory. <laughs> and it's really pretty desperate, I think, when the atheists yeah. make that kind of claim because it's very counterintuitive. So that's one of the arguments, the cosmological argument. And then there's also the design argument, which you can use at the large scale in terms of the fine-tuning of the universe, meaning the laws, the constants, and so on, being calibrated on a razor's edge to make conscious life possible. The idea there is that it's fantastically improbable that all these different variables, like the cosmological constant and gravity and all the rest of it, would be what they are, because the odds are against all of these variables taking the amounts that they have or taking the shape that they have. So the design explanation is actually a better explanation. So if you roll dice and uh, you roll six dice a hundred times in a row and you get sixes every time, you have to say these dice are loaded. You know, you can't explain that through any natural law. You can't explain that by chance. You have to explain that according to a design. You know, somebody rigged it because it's so fantastically improbable and because it fits a certain kind of pattern. So when we've got this fine-tuning at the large scale, you have to say, well, it's either chance, chance plus natural law, or there's an intelligent designer that actualized these variables. And the argument from design with fine-tuning is that the mind is the better explanation and intelligent cause behind all these structural features of the universe is the best explanation. It's not atheism, which would appeal to chance and or natural law. And then we can also work that argument at the small scale in terms of some of the features of the cell and the molecular machines in the cell and also the information content in DNA and RNA. Those arguments get a little more technical, but if you're talking about information, the basic sense is that if you have a message, you have an author of the message. And when you look at the nature of DNA and RNA and how things are coded and written and so on, you really have a very complex and very specified message. Uh, you can call it the language of life. Now, the naturalists have to explain that, again, on the basis of chance and or natural law. They cannot appeal to an intelligent designer, appeal to God. But I argue that that is the most rational inference. So if you're walking on the beach and you see written out in the sand, John loves Mary, you wouldn't say that the waves or the wind or the seagulls or something wrote out that message. Why? It's too complex and it's too specified. It fits a meaning, a linguistic meaning. And in fact, in a different way, when we look inside the cell and we look at DNA and RNA, we find a language, a very complex and specified particular language that is not explicable in terms of just unintelligent natural forces. And what's exciting about these two arguments that I've summarized very briefly is that they're becoming stronger as the years go on the more we find out about physics and particularly molecular biology and the nature of the cell, the nature of 
DNA and RNA and things of that nature because we're finding out that there's a level of sophistication that was uh, hitherto unknown. And the naturalists have to try to accommodate this. So you've got naturalists making claims that the universe just popped into existence without a cause with all of its design and all of its complexity. It's just there for no reason. Naturalists claim that this language of life just came out of non-life, although they have no real mechanism for explaining it. In some cases, they just assert it and say, we won't allow a design explanation. So we will never accept the design explanation. We'll keep looking for some atheistic, materialistic explanation. And that's not really playing fair when you have the data of design at the large scale and at the small scale, and you have an argument which eliminates natural law and or chance as being sufficient to explain it. And you say, look, we have all kinds of examples of intelligent beings designing things like computer code, like writing in a book. Well, that's exactly what you find in the DNA and the RNA. You find messages that are not accountable for on the basis of random factors combined with natural laws. So the best explanation is not a leap of faith. It's not just positing something, affirming something. The best explanation, given the facts at hand, which are growing, is design. So that tells us something about God as well. We know that God is the cause of the universe. We know God is the designer of the universe. And that fits exactly what the Bible says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is a being who has imprinted his evidence, his rationality, on the cosmos. So I'm heartened and encouraged when I look into these areas and I find scientists and philosophers working at a very high level of sophistication and arguing that design is the best explanation. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution on KDUR 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. Now, a lot of the different critics and skeptics, they would look at the evidence and they might not come up with a rational defense of their position or criticism of the evidence. And in a lot of cases, it seems they turn to the next best criticism, which is the problem of pain or the problem of evil. I know God doesn't exist because how could a good God that's all-powerful exist and allow the pain and suffering we see in the world? How would you answer that question? You have to look at the total case for Christianity, which I try to give in my book, and then you ask, what is the best worldview to explain pain and suffering? Because every worldview has to give some kind of an account for evil in the world, not just Christianity. Now, Christianity claims that an all-good, all-powerful God is the real God, and that God, in his character, is consistent with the amount of evil in the world. Now, an atheist obviously doesn't have to defend that, but an atheist has to somehow explain the reality of evil and give some kind of wisdom for coping with evil. So what I argue, and I can only summarize it, is that that atheism and pantheism and other views that God is finite and so on don't really explain the nature of good and evil. In fact, Christianity does, because there are arguments for a creator, a designer. There's an argument for God as good as the giver of the moral law. 
So when we find evil, we have to say, how do we frame this, or how do we understand it? And biblically, it's understood that creatures have rebelled against the Creator, but not such that the Creator has lost control, and that a good God can bring a greater good out of evil. And moreover, this good God is not simply there as the Creator and Designer, but He has come to earth in the person of Jesus Christ in order to redeem and set free his erring creatures. And that's where Christianity differs from all the other worldviews that are out there on offer because it claims that Christ lived an impeccable life, worked miracles, raised the dead, died on the cross for us to atone for our sins and was raised from the dead. And Christianity is the only religion that claims that God has incarnated for the sake of our redemption and worships a risen Savior. If there is a good argument for God and a good argument for the incarnation of God in Christ, then we can give meaning to suffering. It's not wasted. It's not pointless. It's not gratuitous. We may not understand much of it, but that doesn't mean there's no reason for it. If there is an all-good, all-powerful, all-wise God who is come to us through Jesus Christ, then there is no pointless suffering. So it's a tough question, but you can turn it back on the person and say, all right, I've got an answer, I've got some response to what you say, but how do you understand good and evil? Yeah, I did that once in a debate here on campus with an atheist. I asked him why he believed that evil existed, and he had to conclude that there was no objective basis for evil and that it was really a matter of opinion. And I asked him if he'd be okay with me shoving a knife into his stomach, and he said I would not be happy with that decision, and I wouldn't like it, but I couldn't say it was morally wrong. Oh, you got him on that one. (laughs) It just showed the bankruptcy of the non-Christian problem of evil. And I think your answer is phenomenal, that in Christ there's a purpose and there's a reason. So the last question, the biggest question What about Jesus? Because all the Bible leads up to this person, Jesus, the man, Jesus, God in human flesh, as the Bible claims. Tell me about his uniqueness, his claims, and the message of Christianity. Scripture claims that Jesus was not merely a man. He was a man, but that he worked wonders. He cast out demons. He healed people. He taught an incomparable message. He was an unparalleled thinker, a philosopher. He out-argued people. But that he also claimed to be God in the flesh. He said, before Abraham existed, I am. And his audience understood that. He was claiming to be the I am that I am of the Old Testament. And in many ways, he claimed divine authority. In Mark 2, you see him saying that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And People in that culture knew that only God can forgive sin, so Jesus, a man, is claiming the authority of God. So then you have to ask, was he right or was he wrong? And if he was wrong, he was either intentionally deceiving people, which would make him a terrible person, or he was suffering from some kind of delusion. He would be mentally ill. And I argue in the book that neither one of those explanations are sufficient when you look at the overall character of Jesus. You look at his concern the outcast, the marginalized, when you look at his intelligence, when you consider the, the record of his miracles and so on, he doesn't fit the category of being a deceiver, 
or deceived. So if that's true, then the best explanation, the inference is simply that he was who he said he was. And when you look at the evidence for the resurrection after the crucifixion, you see that it's very strong. If Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead in real space-time history, then that vindicates everything he said. That puts him in a category all by himself. And that's why Christians go around the world proclaiming and explaining and defending the gospel, because we serve a risen Savior who's the only hope for the world, and it's based on the facts. It's based on the evidence. It sure is. Well, as we conclude this interview, I want to encourage the audience to look into and to buy Christian Apologetics. I just got it on my Kindle recently, and it took all of about 45 seconds to download. So if you have a Kindle, type Christian Apologetics in Amazon or wherever, and and you'll quickly be able to access this wonderful work. It's a 750-page book or something like that. I guess Kindle does 752. You're almost 752, yeah. And it's a great, great great volume. But anyway, Dr. Groteis, thank you so much for being on the show with us today. Thank you for all you do. You're welcome. And And, uh, my my hope and my prayer is that it will be used to show many people that Christianity is, in fact, true, rational, and of the utmost significance for time and eternity. Any closing remarks you'd like to share with our audience? I'd like to encourage Christians to know what they believe and why they believe it to become more savvy in defending their faith rationally. I think Christians drop the ball on that quite often. And then I would challenge those who are not believers in Christ to investigate it, to really check out what Christianity is, what the claims are. A lot of people get that wrong. And then consider the reasons to believe it. And this matters. This is very significant because... Christianity has historically claimed, and claims in the Bible, that Christ is the only mediator between God and human beings. He's the only hope. He's the only way for forgiveness and eternal life. And apart from him, there is no eternal life. There is destruction. There is torment. And that's serious business. So I think it makes sense for someone to consider Christ, to really look into his claims honestly and openly. Thank you so much again for being on the show today. You're welcome. Happy to be with you. Have a great afternoon. You too. Um, Bye-bye. Once again, in closing, please visit theconstructivecurmudgeon.blogspot.com for more on Dr. Groteis and check out all of his books at Amazon or any other bookseller. If you haven't yet begun a relationship with Christ after hearing the evidence that we discussed today, I would encourage you to take that step of faith. That's really what it boils down to. Jesus promises that anyone who puts their trust in him will be adopted into his family. If you've never taken that step of beginning that relationship with him, I would ask you to realize this morning that God loves you more than you could ever imagine, that he thinks about you constantly, that he desires to be in intimate relationship with you today and for all of eternity. Your sin and my sin keep us from that, however. Our sin separates us from God just like it separates all relationships. And on top of that, it prevents us from experiencing the abundant life on this planet that he promises and an eternity in heaven with him. 
He, however, has a solution for our sin problem. He came and he lived a perfect life on this earth, God in human flesh. He died on the cross, taking all of your sin and my sin upon himself so that anyone who puts their trust in him can be forgiven, cleansed, completely made perfect in his sight because of what he did at the cross, not because of my own works. Now the ball's in my court, and it's in your court. Will I receive the free gift that he offers? Will I receive his payment for my sins? Please receive his payment for your sins. You can do that in prayer by faith right now. You can say, Jesus, please come into my life. Change me. Forgive me. Make me the kind of person you want me to be. And he promises that if that's your heart, if that's your true desire, and you surrender control of your life to him, opening the door of your life to him, he will come in and he will never leave. An open mind, an honest heart, a humble disposition, and a diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I hope that as we evaluated some of the evidence for faith in Christ this morning, that you came to that perspective of saying, yes, I cannot say no to the evidence any longer. No matter where you're at in your spiritual journey, please visit the River Church this morning. They're a great group of believers that will accept you no matter where you're coming from and that you can grow in your faith right alongside. They meet at 1045 this morning at 860 Plymouth Drive, just off Florida. I would encourage you to give them a visit. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.